0: Today, I'm going to give you some business ideas that you can use to create a financial planning practice. This will serve those of you who have an interest in getting into the business, uh, but maybe want to do it from a more independent perspective. I know several members of the audience want to build a, a financial coaching practice uh, or our accountants trying to set up a business. So today, I'm going to give you my ideas. This is the business that I was considering setting up uh, if I couldn't make Radical Personal Finance a go. Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. My name is Joshua Sheets, and today is Wednesday, January 28, 2015. Today on the show going to be fairly light, but I'm going to give you a business plan. This was my business plan, the business I've decided not to start, or at least for now. Try to give you some insight into it, and I am going to give you all my best ideas, and I hereby give you permission to steal them. Today is going to be fairly light, fairly fun. I'm in a good mood. I've had a busy day, and I did want to make sure to get a show out here, but I didn't want to get into anything hardcore or... or too heavy. Uh, so I'm going to give you a structure and a model for a potential financial planning practice. Uh, this will not be of interest to all of you, although I would recommend, you know, listening to it. I'm going to pretend that I'm speaking to people that specifically want to start their own independent financial planning firm. Uh, whether that's because you are maybe a a financial blogger or a writer and you desire to create, uh, revenue from working with clients or whether that's because you are maybe an accountant like the show I handled last week with several clients uh, desiring to transition over, or excuse me, several listeners desiring to transition over from accounting to financial planning. Uh, I'm going to give you just basically my setup, my idea for how I was going to structure uh, the the firm I started called Fiduciary Financial Consulting, and I've decided at the moment I'm not pursuing that business, so I'm going to give all my ideas away. And I, like I said, <laughs> you are hereby authorized to uh, to take them and steal them. When I left the firm I was with previously, I did not leave because I was dissatisfied with the company that I worked with. I did not leave because I was dissatisfied with the structure of the business. I didn't leave for any of those reasons. I believe at any firm except one, which is your own, any financial advisor is probably going to have something that they would like to maybe see done differently, but there's no such thing as the perfect financial planning firm. If you're involved in your own firm, there's something you're going to want to see differently and you're just trying to figure out how on earth do I get the capability to actually follow through with this. So I had zero ill will, zero problems. I was able to build a business that I was proud of and to do it in a way that I was proud of. There were certain shortcomings, certain things I didn't have access to, certain things I couldn't do, but it was no problem for me. I would just simply uh, tell my clients and prospective clients, "I can't serve you in that manner," and I was able to find enough ways to serve them that I could bring the value that I wanted to bring to them. And I think that's the answer for all of you who are existing financial planners: Uh, recognize you can't serve everybody, and you can't serve everybody well. So simply acknowledge the people that you can't serve well, and if you have, if you don't have uh, a product or a solution or an answer for a specific situation, just tell your clients and do your best to send them to a place that, that they do. That's the important thing. So I would not have left the firm that I was at if I wasn't starting this show. The only thing that I couldn't figure out how to do at that time was to start this show. And it wasn't that I couldn't do any kind of, of show It was that I couldn't do the show in the way that I wanted to do it, with the types of topics that I wanted to do it. I couldn't do it in the daily format. Uh, I couldn't do it with the edgy, kind of interesting topics that I often cover. I just couldn't do it the way that I wanted to do it. And I either wasn't going to do it or I needed to do it the way that I wanted to do it because the world doesn't need another sanitized, corporatized, professionalized 27 and a half minute uh, discussion that sounds like you're reading from uh, a financial planning textbook that is yeah I can't stand that it's so boring to listen to and sure maybe it's helpful to some people but I just don't think the world needs more of that this it's got enough of that as it is, is right now the world needs something that's interesting and that's that's deep that makes you think and but yet that's also that's accurate and that's relevant and that's careful and it needs in at that t- time when I've you know was kind of building the genesis for this sh- for this show uh, what the world I decided the world needed the world needed something consistent something regular uh, that would provide information and I couldn't figure out a way to build this show in that context so I had to decide when I was decide well am i going to leave this am i going to start the show or am i just going to keep doing what i'm doing and not let it exist and it was a very costly decision for me in terms of personal financial cost of the client base that i walked away from to do the show but i just figured i i feared not doing it and regretting it more than i feared doing it and failing uh, so i jumped and but i needed a backup plan And that backup plan is how was I going to monetize a show? How was I going to be able to earn an income from the show? The most straightforward way to earn an income from a show like this would be for me to do financial planning for individual clients. I've received plenty of inquiries for that, and I appreciate every one of them. It's very flattering. Uh, But the challenge is am I going to do planning or am I going to create the show? I haven't been able to figure out how to be productive enough with the 168 hours that I get every week uh, to be able to effectively serve a volume of individual financial planning clients to the level of service that I think should be given and produce the level and quality of content with the regularity that I want to produce it on this show. It takes quite a bit of time to prepare the shows, to keep them accurate, to make sure that I'm careful – to make sure that I'm detailed with my content but that I'm not just simply you know, reading chapters from a financial planning book and plagiarizing somebody else's work. Uh, so it takes a tremendous amount of time and also just the process of doing it, the process of setting up a, a website and handling all this stuff. It takes time, and I haven't been able to figure out both things without having a staff. I probably could do it if I had a staff, I had a producer, and I just simply had to trot into a studio, sit down and do it. Um, but I can only do it in that context actually if I were just doing exclusively interviews or if I were doing exclusively question and answer if I were doing this show live on the radio uh, just dealing with inbound customer calls that or, or uh, listener calls, that would be pretty easy for me it, that's it's, you know it 's easy it 's easy to give a four or five minute answer that That's straightforward. Most people's financial planning questions are not complicated in any regard. And so it's pretty simple to do. That's easy. No preparation needed. Interviews are relatively easy. Little preparation needed. What's difficult is to design a show around a certain concept – What's difficult is to design a planning show, and how do I structure this information in a way that is, is useful? That takes a, a tremendous amount of time and effort, and I believe that's important, so I've chosen to do that uh, and not do individual planning. But I always had in the back of my, uh, my mind uh, a, an idea for a, a firm, of a way that I could leverage this show into working with individual clients can't do both and i've decided i'm not going to do the firm uh, or at least i'm not going to do the firm in the near near term future and if i ever do build a financial planning firm again i need to do it with a partner who can run the firm who's an experienced planner uh, who's, who's well credentialed with whom there's a you know who understands uh, the business who understands the need of, of how to establish things to serve customers and then my role would be on the marketing end kind of bringing in the clients and building the brand with with this show or something similar and my role would be in an advisory role of making sure that we're doing an excellent job with those initial uh, you know how we run the business how the 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 meetings are structured, the technology that we have the recommendations that we have that type of thing so it would be much more of an advisory and marketing role similar to what Rick Edelman did with his firm. He's always been involved in the marketing side and very little in the client side. I just don't have the there's not enough hours in the week for me to do it effectively uh, to do both so uh, but Again, if I did you know some shows and I couldn't make any money on the business, then my plan was I'll go ahead and hang out my shingle and, and open up business for the firm. And so here's the business model that I designed that I thought would work effectively. I would call this model an exclusive financial planning or financial consulting model. This model does not include a provision for specialized application of investment expertise. This is strictly mainstream financial planning, detailed financial planning, but mainstream financial planning or financial consulting uh, is what will work in this model. And essentially, the idea is to do everything in exchange or, or to offer the idea of a monthly fee and to allow clients to pay you a monthly fee in exchange for planning services. When I look at how to achieve success with financial planning, Very little of it has to do with anything that is one time, and much of it has to do with things that are on an ongoing basis. And this is one of the flaws in the way that financial advice is delivered currently. Uh, And and the other thing that I'll do in just a moment is I'll I'll tell you the market segment that this serves, because not everybody needs this kind of, of service, but I think there are a lot of people that do. If you look at the way that compensation is structured in the financial planning industry, it's going to usually be tied to a product of some kind. And that's okay. That's right. That's, that's, as far as I'm concerned, that is perfectly fine and ethical. So here would be an example it's probably going to be tied to the product of an insurance, the, the sale of an insurance product. If somebody needs life insurance, they need a life insurance policy. And for that specific need, the sale of a product solves the need for the life insurance policy. If somebody needs investments or investment management, then that's a product. They can buy investments or buy an investment uh, in, buy investment management, and that can be done, that can be structured either, either in the form of a commission uh, or in, exchange, in the form of an expense ratio or in the form of a, an, assets, uh, an asset under management fee if you're working with a specific planner. But what those things don't address is they don't address the daily, weekly, monthly, individual, personal finance decisions that lead to how much money can be put into the investment account. Maybe some of these things are addressed if you have an excellent tax planner, an excellent accountant. But many times the accountant is being paid for the production of a return, not for the delivery of advice. When I look at many mainstream Middle America, median income household uh, types of uh, of clients, the things that they need. There's very little ability from to uh, build in excess uh, performance be, for, through the sale of a specifically advantageous product. There's very little ability, uh, insurance product. There's very little ability to make a massive difference with some unique investment uh, uh, from a from a publicly traded security standpoint. But there's a massive possibility for other types of planning. There's a massive possibility for uh, bringing together the need for enhancing income, building a career. There's a massive opportunity for how to help somebody – optimize their tax situation. There's a massive opportunity for helping somebody go through their monthly budget and isolate individual categories of expenses and, and illustrate how each category can be trimmed. So that leads to more investment dollars. And then those investment dollars can be invested more wisely in various aspects of life that go far beyond publicly traded securities. That's where there's easy pickings in the majority of mainstream median income American households. I think I could walk into most households and just on a regular basis, I could, I could find thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars in an ongoing basis. The challenge, however, is how on earth do you do that with clients? After all, I do this show every single day and they're, uh, or, I mean, they're long and I don't run out of topics and I've got a list with hundreds of topics that I'm just waiting to talk about. So how do you help that with a client when you've got one hour a year, two hours a year of client meetings? Can't be done. Can't be done in the hourly model. That was the model I forgot to mention. Can't be done in the hourly model because a client walks in and expects in 42 minutes we're going to solve all of my financial problems. And at that point, I'm just getting started fact-finding. Not because I'm slow or not because I'm verbose. I'm actually not that verbose in client meetings even though I am on this show. But because we're just starting to figure out the details that are needed to figure out. We're just starting to peer into some of the things like who's got the higher earning social security record in the spouse's uh, – in a, in, a, in a marriage situation so that we can figure out what's an intelligent social security distribution strategy so that we can figure out how to add tens of thousands of dollars over the lifetime of somebody's retirement. But that takes time. That doesn't come out in the first 42 minutes. And most people breeze through their financial planning client, financial planning meetings and appointments so fast. And they just want the quick and easy answer of what do I do with my 401k? When the reality is, I can't do much with a 401k. I could do a lot with your social security plan. So that I'm like, how do I solve this problem? And I thought of it solving it in the idea of coaching, kind of like bringing together financial planning and life coaching and budget coaching and career coaching and everything in the, in the context of coaching and doing that on a regular basis, i.e. monthly. And I think this model could be powerful. This is what I would like to find. If I could find a financial planner who would do this for me, this would be worth money to me. So therefore, that's how I came up with the business. I said, here's what I would like to find, and I can't find anybody doing it. So here's the model I, des- I designed. Why don't I work with people as their financial planner on an ongoing monthly basis? And the requirement or the goal is that we speak at least monthly. And every month, we're going to focus on one different area of planning. And there's nothing off limits. So that may mean that in January, we sit down and we look at the annual budget and we figure out – is our annual budget in line with what we want it to be? That may mean in February that we talk a little bit of tax planning. Uh, what are we going to do? Should we make contributions to – you know here it's February. We're going to make our contributions for the previous tax year. Should we put them into a Roth or should we put them into an IRA? Should we fund an HSA? Should we fund an ESA? How should we set these things up? But it might mean that we sit down in March and we say, listen, how many books are you reading? How many posts have you written on your, on your blog? To publicize your, uh, you know, your business or your business or your 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 skills as a as a professional worker, how many meetings, lunch meetings, have you set up with the leaders in your industry? How many connections have you made? Or it might mean that in June we sit down and we work on homeowners insurance and we figure out can we optimize that in some way. And in July maybe we figure out uh, can we start a travel hacking program to fund the annual vacation and do do it with credit cards instead of coming out of pocket with after tax you know four thousand dollars to fund the annual family vacation and it might be that in november we sit down and design a plan that doesn't involve spending, you know, 80,000 bucks on a university education that we can get the equivalent for 7 or things like that. Or in december we might say how can we gift shares of stock in an intelligent way to our grandkids? I don't know. But my point is that these are the types of things that matter. But these are the types of things that very few financial advisors have time to talk about or have incentive to talk about. This happens in very wealthy families because if you have very wealthy families, let's say that I'm managing money for you and you've got $10 bucks with me. And let's say that I'm managing on that 10000000 bucks, million, I'm charging a 1% fee. Well, I've got $100,000 of revenue coming into my practice now on that basis. So I've got a lot of time that I can I can devote to making sure that you as a wealthy person are very are fully helped in every area of life. I'll go out to lunch with the kids and help them with their career plans. I'll have you know Uncle Joe and Aunt Sally who are struggling come into the office and we'll talk about money. I'll have I'll help you know uh, Drunk Uncle Rick get put into uh, rehab uh, so that he stops you know making stupid decisions. I'll sit down with uh, you know Susie who's starting a business and he needs a you know, she needs a little bit of help uh, with the details of what type of entity can we do. I've got a hundred thousand dollars of revenue into my. Practice. I've got a lot of incentive to keep that revenue around. But if I'm managing you know, $150,000 and I'm just going to use that 1% fee number throughout as an example, uh, as a good benchmark to kind of compare the uh, incentives for the work of a financial advisor. So I've got $150,000 of your money you and know, a little IRA that has my name on it, and I'm charging 1%, that's $1,500 a year. On an hourly basis for a skilled professional, how many hours of work should I devote to your account? Let's say that we have an annual meeting once a year. That meeting is probably going to be somewhere between one to two hours. Let's say that I call you uh, or we have two meetings a year. So each one of those is two hours. If I've got to go drive out and see you or meet you somewhere or come to your office, that takes an hour out of my time. Thirty minutes to get there because I got to be early to make sure I'm not late. Uh, uh, maybe an hour to get there. I got to fight traffic. I got to pay for parking. I got to get there. If we're going to go to lunch, I need to pay for lunch. I need to uh, get that into my schedule. Again, got to fight parking. Got to go to go to in traffic. Uh, if we're going to do a quarterly call and I'm going to call you to make because sure, you're concerned about the performance of your investments this is a big deal. Financial advisors need to keep in continual touch with their clients. So that's going to be, let's say, 30 minutes. You're probably not going to answer. So I'm probably going to have to leave a voicemail. You're going to call me back later uh, or I'm going to need to call twice. So you know that I tried multiple times to reach you, but you never fe- felt like calling me back. And I got to make sure that you as a client know that I tried and that I did my work, but you don't feel like calling me back. So now I, you know, I just put a check mark and go on. So the point is, let's say that I work at you know, 12 hours that leaves me at an hourly rate of 125 bucks, and that's gross income. That's not net of my rent. That's not net of my staff. That's not net of my cell phone. That's not net of my gas. It's 125 bucks. So I have little incentive to sit down with Tommy with his new business or with Mary when she's going to college and help with that and help with the scholarship forms to figure out and review her essays. I can't do it on $1,500. It's just not I, I i can't that's a that's a poor business decision rather what I need to do in that situation as an advisor is I need to keep you as happy as I can afford to do so and so that means giving you as good service in that in that annual meeting, answering your questions, making sure that you've got a, some information, maybe my monthly newsletter or something like that. And I've got to give you the best I can, but I can't overdeliver, or it's a bad, bad business decision. So, in large financial planning practices, then we segment our clients. We have have our A clients, our B clients, our C clients, uh, and those are clients that are. And those those uh, categories are are usually have at least one metric that's based upon revenue. How big is the account? And the A client might might set up a, 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 a. plan where we say okay our a clients we're gonna have 25 touches in a year to make sure that we're communicating with them so the a clients will say we're gonna send 12 monthly newsletters that's 12 touches we're gonna to call you know every other month that's six so we're up to 18 we're gonna do a client appreciation event the local wine tasting or a cigar bar or whatever uh, you know a dinner out we're gonna do that there's one we're gonna make sure that we have uh, our quarterly reviews so there's four but then you have your C clients, which you call once a year and you try to do your best for. And that's a practical business decision. I don't see any way that that it, sh- it can be any different in that scenario. But that leaves a lot of middle America without that great advice that they're looking for and that they need. Someone to sit down and help with the budget. Someone to sit down and help with the debt plan. And so then that reflects on the financial advice industry as a whole. And in general, wealthy households are very satisfied with their advisors, are very satisfied with the service that they received. And yet it seems to me that middle America is not being effectively served because what's often touted is investment outperformance or the uniqueness of one specific financial product. Put all your money into this annuity and you're gonna be, you know, your market guaranteed, you get all the upside potential without the downside risk. No, that might that might be okay in the right scenario. But let's start with <laughs> let's start with the low hanging fruit. Why are you driving 182 miles a day? Why do you have this expensive cell phone plan? Why do you have this here? Why are you choosing to do that? And it's not my job as an advisor to judge a client and tell them what they should do, but it is my job to ask good questions and make sure that whatever you're doing is in line with what you should be doing. I was listening today to a friend of mine who is about to make a uh, a purchase of a house and uh, it's a condo. And it's it's a very nice condo, very, very fancy. But the homeowners association dues are $7,000 per year. Well, this person is not a professional relationship and, and it's not – it's just a casual acquaintance. I have no place. It's none of my business to tell them what to do. But little decisions like, do you realize that you have $7,000 a year of overhead but you're not saving any money and there's no possibility of you're getting out of that overhead? That's a big decision. That's the conversation. That's the low-hanging fruit. So as I thought about this problem that I've just outlined for you, I came up with the idea of doing monthly planning in exchange for a monthly fee. And the idea behind that fee is I need my incentives and my client's incentives to be aligned. I need my client to pay me a monthly fee, and it needs to hurt enough that they're motivated to talk to me. It needs to hurt. They say, I'm going to get my money's worth out of Joshua. Because if they don't talk to me, which believe it or not, most people don't talk to their financial advisors as much as they should, it's very tough to get people to call you and talk to you as much as they should because we as financial advisors have done a very poor job of, I guess, offering ideas and value that go beyond a specific financial product. So people are quick to think of… Of Oh, I'll call Joshua when I need insurance or, oh, I'll call Joshua uh, when I needed to make my IRA contribution on April 13th, but not when I'm buying a house, not when I'm leasing a car, not when I'm doing this. And and that used to just make me scream and I would say, why didn't you call me? I could have saved you thousands with this idea or that idea or this other thing. So I need my client to be incentivized to call me because that makes sure that I can actually do my work. I can actually provide the coaching and the advice and the planning that they need. That's a big deal. And I need to bill it monthly so they have a, a an incentive to call me every month. The other thing I like about that monthly idea is it puts the burden on me in a good way, where if I don't do a good job of connecting with my client every month, they can cancel. That's another one of the things I'd like to see and that I designed into my plan, is every month... They can cancel at any time. There's no contract. And so now I'm incentivized as an advisor and as a coach to do a good job of reaching out to the client and saying, hey, listen, you know, let's get this done. And I've got to make decisions because every month – excuse me, I've got to make an impact because every month the client is going to see that bill on their credit card statement uh, or pull it out of their checking account every single month that fee is what we call highly salient. It's felt, and I like that. I like the burden, I like the pressure that that puts on me as an advisor to say, I've gotta deliver in excess of this fee. If I don't, I'm not worth it. I believe that's the standard by, by which we as financial advisors should be judged from. We must deliver specific financial value which is substantially in excess of our fees or we're simply not worth the money, period. And no one should hire us. It's the same for any transaction, any business transaction. I've got to deliver. So I like that. It puts a pressure on me, which is probably not a good business decision. Most businesses um, <laughs> most businesses want their fees and their costs to not be salient. This is what's so beautiful about simply billing assets as clients often are not... Um, Aware of what's being built. This is what's so brilliant about expense ratios, and uh, you know, paying commissions, uh, 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 billing commissions uh, on a basis where they're uh, they're higher, but they're ongoing and they're hidden. Uh, that's those fees are, are very uh, they're they're not salient. They're not they're very they have they're not apparent to most people. Uh, people don't know about them. That's what makes people who pay attention very upset, but it's a simple business decision to try to make things as low-impact as possible. Everyone makes it, you try to make it easy for people to buy. That in and of itself is practically the whole idea. If I can deliver monthly advice and speak with my clients at least once a month and we have essentially a coaching model – And yes, there needs to be some formal technical financial planning. I need to create a a nice, snazzy-looking document with some pie charts Uh, at some point. We need to do some financial planning projections. But it's much more of just that, that continual conversation, somebody to remind you, hey, what are you focusing on right now? Well, right now I'm working on this big account. I've got to get this thing closed or I'm working on this big project. Great. Get the big project done. But then the next month, hey, did you call the guy across town that you needed to go out to lunch with? did are you keeping consistent with your numbers of of what you need to do? are you getting home for your family kind of that like that weird like amalgamation of life coach business coach career coach uh, counselor uh, psych 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 uh, which one's Psycho, psychologist or psychiatrist i don't i don't understand the difference you're one of the psych people that that uh that helps people <laughs> That's, that's kind of the model that, and then you're right there, you have the whole business idea. But it's hard for me to imagine in that model with that consistent uh, contact, it's hard for me to imagine not being able to deliver a massive transformation in somebody's life over time. And because all good financial ideas are iterative, you got to do them again and, again and again and again and again and again and again, and they all have to be adjusted. Right now, I'm going through and adjusting my, uh, my accounting system, my own personal household accounting system. Just because it was good in the past doesn't mean it's good now. you got to go through and shop everything. You get, you know, hey, it's been two years since we've shopped life insurance. This month we got to shop life insurance. Hey, it's been two years since we shopped homeowners insurance. This month we got to shop this. Hey, it's been a year since we shopped car insurance. We need to make the phone call and see is there something that we can get? Can we get another discount? Can we adjust something? This is the stuff that people don't do, and this is why people stay broke. And this is what we as advisors, I think, can make a big difference from median income middle America. This is not appropriate planning for the wealthy. The wealthy, although these things, the concepts carry over, there's just not the same uh, connection. I don't need to sit and talk with uh, a family of multimillionaires and say, you know, got to sell the iPhone and, or get rid of the iPhone because it's too expensive. That's a total waste of time. But I do need to make sure the business transactions are structured properly. I do need to make sure that the amounts that are being spent are in line. I do need to make sure that investments are being handled well. So it's a complete. that's, that's a different business model. This, I'm talking about something where you can serve middle America, median income households. I like the alignment of incentives with that monthly fee model. And the other advantage under that scenario – If I'm charging fees directly to a checking account, which I'm not necessarily convinced is the only way to do this, Uh, I'll cover AUM and uh, assets under management fees in a moment. But I like the idea, even if I did choose to only directly charge fees to a checking account or to a credit card, I like that because it's investment style agnostic. And I don't have to worry about that little tiny conflict of interest of how do I get you know how do i keep my clients in this investment when it makes me money this is one of those other complaints that people have against financial advisors and i think it can be a fair complaint or it can be an unfair complaint and you have to look at the situation but you know the probably the best example is well my i told my financial advisor that i wanted to take money out of my investment portfolio to pay off my house and they said no don't do it and i think the only reason that they wanted to that they said no was because they're earning fees off, off the management of my money well, what's the right answer in that situation? Well, the investment advisor may be making a rational discussion and saying, look, the expected return on this investment portfolio here is 8%. The rate of return on your mortgage is 3%. All things being equal, it would not be wise to trade an 8% expected return for a 3% expected return. You should stick with the 8 That might be a rational, cogent argument. Or it might simply be, hey, I don't want you to pull the money out of the account. Now, the client could rebut that uh, recommendation and say, well, look, here are these other factors. Fine. Convince the advisor it's a good idea. But the reality is if you trade eight for three, if all else is equal, it's not. But if all else is equal, not a wise financial move. The thing I like about just simply building fees directly is you're just paying for advice. That's it. Now, how can you possibly do this in a a cost-effective way? One of the things that I was planning is to stop doing in-person planning and to do everything, everything virtual. Over the last six years, when I was actively doing financial planning, I saw a m- marked transition and change from the need for doing everything face-to-face, in-person, to being able to do things virtually with communication done over a phone line and over a computer connection. When I first began financial planning, it was very clumsy. The tools existed. Skype has been around for a long time. But it wasn't clumsy and people weren't well, well connected to it. The uh, screen sharing programs for your computer software, they worked but they weren't easy and they weren't cheap. And even if they were easy and affordable, people weren't accustomed to using them. And so you would have many clients that are just not comfortable with the idea of how do I pull up this, this, this webinar program? How do I pull up the screen sharing program? I've seen that change though. And one of the changes that I made is I, I learned that I actually used virtual planning as a tool in my back pocket. One of the rules in financial planning is when you're working through a conversation in which a decision needs to be made – Whether that's we're going to reallocate the portfolio, whether that's we're going to move the money into this trust, whether you that's that's um, we're going to buy this insurance policy, you need all the decision makers present. And in most you know middle middle income median America, uh, median income middle middle America that I'm talking about here, that usually means husband and wife. We need both of them present. I would never make a major financial decision or a major purchase decision, especially one that included an ongoing uh, commitment. Uh, without my wife's approval, and she wouldn't make one without me. So as a salesperson, if I were trying to sell to us, I would be a fool to only be sitting with me because I'm immediately at the end of that appointment, I'm going to immediately say, hey, I got to go check with my wife. Or she would say, hey, this sounds great, but I'm going to take it home and talk with my husband. And that's how the majority of households operate. So I learned, and you learn very quickly, if you're taught it. I was taught it, and I just... Assume that the people who taught me knew what they were talking about, and they did. We, we can't, we're we not going to do that. But the challenge is that that we're not going to do that in the sense of I wouldn't take an appointment with only one. If I, if, if I were going on my way to an appointment, I might meet initially with one spouse, but if I were going back to present a financial plan, I would cancel the appointment immediately if there were only one spouse is was going to be there. It's a waste of my time. Both spouses need to be there, and it's non-negotiable. Uh, I'm not going to go through and spend an hour and a half of my time presenting this beautiful plan and then expect you to be able to take it home and go over it with your wife and understand how Joshua's 147-page presentation actually made sense. It made sense when I said it, but when it gets home, it looks all gibberish to to you and you're trying to explain it to your spouse. So, uh, but what I learned, uh, so the problem is that our schedules are busier than they've ever been. And... With that, it's tough to get appointments done, and especially for in middle America, where it's much less likely that people will have time freedom, will be able to meet during the day. Uh, That's a real challenge. Many people who are professionals or who are hourly workers, uh, service workers working in the trades, things like that, these are great prospective clients, but it's hard for them to get away at 2 o'clock, and by the time they got to drive 30 minutes across town to get to my office, uh, an hour in my office and 30 minutes back, that cuts out a major portion of the day. So what happens is most planners working in this market, you wind up working at night sitting around the kitchen table. Well, what does that do for the quality of my lifestyle as a planner? Now, I've got to be away from my family at night. And at 7.30 at night, I'm sitting in a house you know, an hour away, and i got to drive home. I, I get in the door at 9.30, and I'm going to be at the office the next day at 7.30 in the morning. That's a challenge. So one of the tools I learned was just simply to do this virtually. And I learned that I could get husband and wife on a conference call, and we could do a screen-sharing presentation. And the screen-sharing tools were so great that I could actually spend time um, just simply going through it. And they could understand it. They didn't need to make any decisions. They went through the presentation together, and we were able to get stuff done. And I learned, me personally, FedEx is cheap compared to driving around town. So I learned to do a lot of business, even with clients who were in town, Virtually, I never could quite get them get those relationships as comfortable as they should have been without meeting somebody first. It's still tough to establish trust, which I'm going to get to in a minute of how you can establish trust. It's tough to establish trust in an initial telephone call. If you've heard from me out of the blue and you hadn't listened to hours of my podcast, and no matter how great I sounded on the phone, you wouldn't know who I am. And the type of uh, fact-finding questions that you need to ask in an initial client interview are very personal, and in person you can see that I'm a person, and you can see and kind of make a gut reaction like we all do whether I'm trustworthy or not. And so then when I ask you questions and I'm asking you how much money you have and what your goals in life are and you know if you have group benefits and you know how much insurance you have and what your estate plan looks like and I'm going through those questions, that's a comfortable question to do in person. But if we don't have a relationship, that's an uncomfortable thing to do on an initial basis on the phone for many people. So I usually would always, usually would always, I would go at least the first time for local clients to an in-person appointment. But once there's some trust there, then I would have the opportunity and I would just kind of work virtually from then on. That was a major benefit to me and it was a major benefit to my clients. And I think that's the, one of the futures of even traditional financial planning is to do more virtual. I believe it's a benefit for all involved. It's a benefit for me that I don't have to be out of my house at 7.30 at night. I can be home with my family. It's a benefit for my client that they can do things during the day without it taking three hours away from the office. It's more convenient for everyone involved. And what I learned is actually I was able to do better planning. The reason I was able to do better planning is because I was able to translate from force of personality and persuasion, selling persuasion, to consulting. One of the challenges with being a financial planner is if you're any good as a salesperson, it's easy to be too persuasive. I've learned. I was too persuasive in sometimes, and I, I've learned to actually be less persuasive uh, because I could get people excited about a concept or an idea. I could talk about – you know, I, 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 mean, I could run some financial calculator magic. Look, $100 a month, 8% interest. Blah, 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 blah. And Or look, if we just got this up to $600 a month like I do on the show sometimes. Look, you just put in $600 and we get you an extra 1% rate of return. Look at how great things can be. And I would be too persuasive sometimes and, call, and people would overcommit. I learned not to do that because overcommitment is bad. It leads to accounts being closed, it leads to uh, insurance policies being lapsed, and it leads to a lot of unnecessary cost and expense. So I learned I had to actually dial back my persuasion and be less persuasive and help clients slow down. Might sound a little bit strange to those of you who were there, or I mean, who haven't been in that situation, but it, I found it was very important, because if I'm persuasive, we all know when we're being persuaded of something and encouraged and inspired to do something, whether it's good or not. But the point is, after the fact, you're left with the mental impression that you've been persuaded. Now, whether you were persuaded to do something good or not doesn't matter. Whether the recommendation that I made was persuasive or not doesn't matter. You're still left with that impression after the initial, after the appointment. You think, wow, Joshua was so convincing. That can be bad sometimes if you have buyer's remorse three months later and you say, man, Joshua's got me putting $867 in here and I'm broke. I got I to gotta back this thing up. You know, He's taking $867 out and I can't take my wife out for dinner. That's a problem. So the thing I learned to like about virtual planning is that it changes the, con- the conversation. It was very difficult for me to be persuasive. It's tougher to be persuasive on the phone than in person. And it was much more planning-oriented. We're just dealing through a computer screen, and we're together, in essence, we're on the same side of the, of the table, looking and dealing with a written plan. And I'm just updating numbers in the financial planning software and illustrating you know, the impact of certain courses of action. That changes the conversation from any hint of persuasion or selling to almost that consulting approach. Now that's a double-edged sword because if all you do is consult and talk numbers, you don't actually help your clients make a difference. Credit cards don't get paid off by themselves. They just sit there and accrue for month after month after month and year after year after year. And no matter how many spreadsheets, if I don't give a little motivational speech and inspire you a little bit to say, "Listen, get after it. You can do it." And, you know, a smack on the butt, you know, virtually, and say, Get after it. Go make the first payment. You could do this. And I build a spreadsheet and show you how you can pay off those debts and show you how if you'll just cut back a little bit here, then you can can make some impact over there. So I've got to persuade a little bit but not too much. And that's one of those things where it's a very delicate balance. It only comes with experience. It really does. Because sometimes you got to pour on the persuasiveness, and sometimes you got to pull it way back. You got to read the situation and see how can I really help this person. But virtually was a benefit because we're both looking at the at the plan, and it was less about persuasion and more about the numbers and the plan. And as long as we can follow through with action, enroll in the four hundred one k, sign up for the investment account, buy the insurance policy, make the credit card payment, pay off the loan. Uh, you know, go call Joe and get your money back, then you can actually have an opportunity. Uh, I mean, as long as you follow through, both of those things are put together. So I think virtual, and that was my plan, is doing everything virtual. I think virtual is a huge value for the client and for the planner. Now, here's the problem. How do you market that kind of service? You've got to solve your marketing problem in the financial planning business, and this is the major problem in financial planning. If everybody was out there wanting to buy a financial planner service and, everyone, and, and their time, then, man, this would be easy, but everyone's not. You've got to find people, and you've got to find people at a point in time at which they want to do business with you, where they need your services. This is why accountants have such a a tremendous benefit, uh, a tremendous advantage in their client relationships. Like it or not, the U.S. government requires you to get your taxes done. And so that means at least once a year you're going to wind up Sitting with your accountant, and there's a reason to see you have to you have to go uh, and see and, and and see your accountant. So you basically have a marketing plan. So one strategy that uh, you have a marketing plan in this way. One strategy that some financial advisors uh, have done is they buy tax practices, and they buy will buy out an accountant's tax practices, and that buys them access to the whole base of clients. There's dozens of ways to market a financial planning business, but. Uh, you have to solve your marketing problem. So whether that's you're going to be – you know, some firms, uh, well, we got a special deal with a school board. So we'll go down and we'll offer to meet with everybody at the school, door, school board or whether that's uh, what I did, friend-to-friend, call-to-call, uh, warm referral, uh, get my clients to call ahead. Hey, Joshua, he's a friend of mine. He, you, should, you should meet him. He's worth at least 15 minutes of your time, uh, that type of thing, or whether it's advertising on the radio or whether it's uh, – <laughs> there's dozens of ways. You've got to solve the marketing problem. But one of the major problems that you've got to solve with that marketing problem is trust. You've got to figure out a way to build trust. If your clients don't trust you, you don't have have an option. And trust comes with time. So as you're building a firm, you need a way to demonstrate that you're trustworthy. This is what's so exciting about 2015 is that one individual person – can produce a lot of content. Those of you who listen to the show, you've built a level of trust with me. If I ever violate that trust, I'm immediately done. I'm sunk. But those of you who've listened to me for enough time, you've gotten a judge of who I am as a person. I can't hide anything. There's nothing in my life that I can hide. Uh, I can keep a few things private but there's nothing that I can hide about who I am because you spend enough time listening to me. So that builds this this amazing level of trust. It used to be only a few people could do that. That was why for a decade – uh, Dave Ramsey he has that trust when Dave Ramsey would say to his listeners, do this, call this person. He's transferring that trust. He transfers his trust, the trust that his clients have in him, his listeners, and he transfers that to Dan Miller. He's written a great book, Utrin Trust Dan Miller. He transfers it to Xander Insurance. Xander Insurance Great Company can do that. He transfers it to Churchill Mortgage Mortgage. Transfers it to his local endorsed local provider program. All that trust gets transferred. But you as an individual, you don't have that unless you sign up and you're going to be a Dave Ramsey endorsed local provider. Uh, pay the fee and, and pay for the referrals and you can, you can do that. That works. Uh, but you've got to figure out a way to demonstrate that you're trustworthy. But what's exciting is that in 2015, you can do that. Every one of us is essentially a media company. Every one of us has the ability to connect with other people. Now, how? That's a big question. How do I market that? But whether it's with a podcast, whether it's a, with your YouTube video, whether it's with having a bunch of information on your website that demonstrates all of your your personal philosophy, all of your uh, ideas, your uh, philosophies and, and uh, planning uh, – uh, Restraint constraints that you place? Uh, what do you believe? Do you believe index versus uh, passive versus active investing, real estate versus stocks, uh, you know IRA versus not? Uh, whatever your deal is, you can convey that. That's amazing. I think personally, I can't prove this is just a gut feeling, but I think the value of the big brands is declining. This is why in the past, big brands were so important. If you went and you joined Merrill Lynch, you had that gold-plated stamp of approval. This, I, his, Josh was a Merrill Lynch guy. You know, I got to trust him because Merrill Lynch has a, you know, has, a, has a gold standard. I don't know. I don't see very high approval ratings for most of the firms. What brand, what big brand today has a, just a sterling reputation in the financial services business that you, no matter what, would do it? you you no matter what would would just say because I'm sitting with the representative of this of this company, I therefore have they've they've imparted the trust of the big brand the trust of the company to this individual representative, so therefore they're my person there's very few, probably the few that have that, and certainly i'm not saying they don't have some of the big brands don't have brand equity. But I would say the few that have that just implicit trust is probably the, the trust companies, different use of the word trust. But that's what it was built out of the, 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 the trust companies that nobody except, you know, practically nobody except the wealthy knows about. Now, there are uh, certain companies, like I said, I was, I was previously with Northwestern Mutual. We had some of that, I had a lot of that. I had clients that trusted just because of the Northwestern Mutual. They liked that, 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 that brand behind me, uh, but that didn't make clients walk in the front door. So I just ask you, do you need the value value of the brand or you need to create your own brand? I think ultimately we all have our own brand today. You know, people sometimes they'll put on their Facebook, this Facebook profile indicate you know is is reflective of the individual opinion of the of the user and not necessarily of the company by which they're employed. Baloney. Nonsense. There's no disconnection. And I say if there's no disconnection, you've got to be responsible for your own brand. So one of the things is you can build that. You can build that trust now. You can build, establish your philosophy. You can share that. You can communicate enough of who you are, and it doesn't have to be like I'm doing. In fact, don't do what I'm doing. This is a death. This would be a a, a death wish for your firm if you try to copy what I'm doing. Uh, but you can build enough of that. You can see who you are. You can do a bunch of videos. You can ha- You can be interviewed. You can convey that. You can write your articles. You can establish that. That's a major problem in marketing is you've got to build trust, and once you build it, by the way, don't ever forsake it. That's why when I answered the question that I answered on the Q and A show on Monday, I did It's because I can't. I can't. As difficult as it is, and yes, I could. Um, I could have avoided the contentious question, uh, and that probably would. I mean, I could have done that. I could I couldn't do that and live with myself because I was a promise that I made for myself when I did this show that I wouldn't run from this. Um, I wouldn't run from anything. Uh, I had to do that to, for me to be happy doing this. But if I answer it, I have to answer it the way that I think it needs to be answered. Otherwise, I break trust. If I ever break trust, I'm done. I'm done. And so I don't and I do it just because of, of that. That's just an external fact that comes out of my, my – I answer it because of my worldview as of, of the way I think I should live my life. Uh, but it does build into trust. Expertise is the next one. How do you market your expertise? You need to find a way to, to illustrate. you need to be an expert. Then you need to find a way to illustrate and demonstrate that expertise. If you can find a way to do that, I think you can really build a, a tremendous business in this, in this type of, uh, of plan. It's got to be a good fit for you as far as what you want in a lifestyle, lifestyle-wise. I'm going to go over some numbers and show how this can work in a minute, but uh, this is not going to be a big money maker, but it might be a nice lifestyle business. And that was actually what my idea was. I decided that I didn't particularly have any interest in in building a multi billion dollar financial planning firm. I don't want to do that at this phase of my life. You know, I've got uh, I've got a young son and another baby on the way. I don't want to spend the next decade away from home, out of the house. You know, eighty hours a week. What a waste of! I, I don't want to do that. So, but I do need to. I do want to make a nice income, and I do want to do it in a way that fits my lifestyle. So it's got to be a a, a good fit for you lifestyle-wise. I think also as far as your marketing plan, you've got to figure out a niche that you're going to work with. I don't think it's possible to do planning for everyone. and I think you're actually doing a disservice to your clients if you do. I started off doing kind of generalized planning to everyone, and I think most financial advisors do that. There's a, we, there's a joke that we use in the business. Who do you talk to? Anyone who could fog a mirror. Like if you can fog a mirror, I'll talk to you, and that's pretty much where we all start, uh, with few exceptions. There are probably some really smart marketers that have started with something different, and that's changing now. More and more people are starting with a niche market. I didn't start that way, but I think over time you've got to build a niche market. Uh, you can't market to everyone, and you've got to do some marketing. in This kind of business, are you going to do? I, mean, I just don't see any way if you can't build a marketing plan for this where you're going to have a way to reach clients. That's not door-to-door, face-to-face, that works great in product sales. You know, the majority of people are underinsured. So if you're selling insurance, that, can, that works great, door-to-door, face-to-face. It's just a matter of running the numbers. And it's a great business. But uh, this type of business, you've got to mar- have a marketing plan. That was how Radical Personal Finance and Fiduciary Financial Consulting fit together. That was my, that was my plan. Uh, if, if the show on its own failed, I had my backup plan where I'd started that marketing process and there would be an ability for me to reach people. But you got to figure out what your niche is. So that's why I don't do what I'm doing because my niche, I don't have a, a clearly defined niche. You, if you're going to be doing marketing, you need to market to your niche. Even big brands, the big ones that just do kind of this brand awareness marketing, they don't actually market to everyone. They market based upon need states. A little bit of industry insight for those of you who are unfamiliar with the uh, hit with with marketing and the marketing business. I used to work for a marketing consulting company, and we consulted and did research for large brands. We did a lot of work for uh, consumer brands and large, you know, the the day to day consumer brands that you're aware of. We did work with consumer packaged goods companies and and fast food, the major fast food franchises. And one of the things that I love learning about in that business is how these companies market their products. And it's all about – they're marketing, quote, unquote, to everyone but not at the same time. And so we had a a thing that we called uh, a need state. And this need state is basically how do you figure out the need that someone is in? So the best example – this wasn't a client of ours. It's just I observed it from watching their marketing. Best example of this that probably most of you would know would be a company like Boston Market. Boston Market markets to everyone but only when they're in a specific set of circumstances. And that set of circumstances is – you're, you had a long day at work. You want to serve a home-cooked family for – a uh, home-cooked meal for your family, but you don't have the ability to, to make it. You don't have enough time. Swing by Boston Market, spend 20 bucks, and we'll take – we'll send you home with a home-cooked meal. So that need state – in the marketing business, we' would say, "Okay, what need state are they in it's just a term for what's the set of circumstances, and maybe we would call that the the hurried, harried mom, something like that you know that idea of a mother who cares about serving quality, real food that's not hamburgers and french fries to her family uh, so that's where but she doesn't have the time to make it because she's on her way home. She left the office at six six fifteen and dinner's supposed to be on at six thirty. That's when you think of Boston Market. And most of the big brand marketing is built upon that. So, whether it's Taco Bell, late at night, you know, their late night thing, it's all about, hey, we went out to the club, now we're on our way home, we need to stop and get fast food. Taco Bell, they're the ones who are there for us at night. That's how the big companies do marketing. So, you can't market to everyone. So, whether you're marketing to people that are in a need state, Example, uh, I work with uh, divorced moms who need to put their life back together Uh, so that way you're then thinking when a mom goes through a divorce and she comes out the other side, that's my planning need. Or I work with widows whose husbands have died or uh, I work – you get the idea. Uh, I don't need to go on with example after example, so or if that niche is the the point is if you're marketing to everyone moms or you know then they're going to be what are they divorced moms or are they widowed moms uh, or if you're going to market to a niche I work with business owners in the uh, Finnish carpentry profession in across the country. <laughs> or I work with plumbers that are union plumbers and I understand how to integrate their union uh, benefits with other uh, aspects. You've got to have a niche because that's the only way you can you can reach them, that you can market to them. If you don't have that, then you're, you're back to kind of that face-to-face model. And the problem with adding this business model, and unlike what I used to do face-to-face when I had insurance as a backup plan, is most people need an insurance policy – It's a lot tougher to say to someone, hey, listen, you're going to pay me X number of dollars a month every month for my financial planning. Well, I don't know you. Yeah, but you still need to pay me this and it's a big money and it's a lot of money. So you got to solve that marketing problem. One of the benefits to this business structure for you as an individual is that you can cut your costs substantially. You can do this on your own. You'll want to establish uh, what's called a registered investment advisory firm. Doesn't actually cost that much now, and it's not that hard. You can do it yourself, and your filing fees—they depend on your state—but it's not that much. It doesn't actually cost that much to set up the entity, file an LLC, um, file with the state, uh, get admitted for business in your in your state with your RIA. Uh, that will—that's that's it. You got to write your. You're going to write what's called your form ADV. It's an advisory disclosure. It becomes your form brochure. You can hire that donor. You can do it yourself. I wrote mine. Uh, I so I did it myself. Uh, it took a few days, but I was able to do it. The virtual model that I outlined cuts major costs. Because now I don't have to, I don't have to buy a class A office space. I don't have to staff a beautiful you know, reception lobby for my clients to wait for me for the meeting. I can work in my bedroom. And if I have a junky house, I can hang a sheet behind my head and no one knows. <laughs> I can put up a, a screen of some kind. Uh, so that virtual model cuts major costs for me as an advisor. And that helps me to deliver more work for individuals at a lower cost. You can also, as an individual, the price of being able to, to deliver options to your clients has come down massively, whether you're talking about financial planning software. In, in, you know A decade ago, if you wanted some kind of financial planning software, that was probably going to be a massive enterprise-level investment, and only a big firm could afford to make the investment to create the software. But now there's many different software packages that are marketing to individual advisors. It's only going to get better. Or whether it's how do I offer, you know, my who am I going to hire to custodian the assets for my clients? Well, there's more and more competition in that space, and this is a huge benefit here. Is some of the what I see is is the future of what we call the robo advisors, kind of the uh, the financial advisory firms that are primarily run by an algorithm. <laughs> Will they work for individuals? I don't know. Well, the, the jury's out. But I agree with Kit, Michael Kitsis on this when he writes about it. He says, the future for the robo-advisors is as back office for the financial advisor. And here's the transition that's happened over time. It used to be that I needed to have a portfolio manager. After all, we've got to figure out what stocks we're going to buy for the client. And so I've got to have an analyst in my office. I need a CFA. They're going to sit there and they're going to figure out what stocks we're going to buy. But now I can offer good investment options and I can hire Betterment in my back pocket to sit here and run the portfolio. And they can do that and I can spend my time planning for the client. Uh, I was planning – to go with a firm called uh, – to use for, for the investment option a firm called Dimensional Fund Advisors, DFA. That was what I was going to build uh, for those clients who wanted to build on the assets under management model to go with DFA. I love DFA's strategy. In my mind, it's simple, it's straightforward, and it works. Now, it's passive only, and I'm not convinced that that's the solution for everything, but it's certainly a very viable solution. And they only work through advisors, and that helps the performance of their funds because they can keep what we call hot money out of the funds. They can, and because I, as an advisor, can help my client to control their emotions. Uh, but then they all, but and they and they serve advisors, and that's the thing. You know, Vanguard doesn't help you if you're financial advisors. Let Vanguard help the DIYers, and no problem to that. If you if you have a client that has Vanguard funds and they want to pay you their monthly fee uh, just out of their checking account, that's fine. I don't have any problem commenting on Vanguard and talking about what funds. And if I'm writing a book, I'm probably going to use that as the proxy because if I'm writing a book, then anybody can just you know trot out to Vanguard.com and buy buy funds. But they don't help me as an advisor because they don't offer me a way to, uh, to, for those clients who want to, to bill my fees on their portfolio. Um, so, But DFA does, and DFA has just as good funds, if not better, and they can follow that portfolio. So check out the DFA story. I think it's a, it's a pretty neat story. Uh, that was the best that I was able to find when I was researching it and what my plan was. Again, at this point, I'm, I'm out of it. But you don't have to offer investment management. One of the things, again, back why I started with that monthly fee is I refuse to only offer investment management based upon the fee because that, again, conflict of interest. Oh, everything's got to be in these mutual funds. No. <laughs> what do you do with the guy who's got a $10 million business but no money in mutual funds? How does he get advice? Well, I'm not going to do it on an hourly basis uh, but uh, because then he's not going to call me enough. But I can set that up on a monthly fee, and I can give good advice, and he could just pay me out of the checking account. So, here's the thing: How much can you make on this kind of model? With my, and I hope it's been fairly clear with what I presented as far as what I had figured out. That depends. I, I, I would ne- I wouldn't bill. I would never consider billing for me l- anything less than a couple hundred bucks a month. That would be the bare minimum I could see billing. Now I'm different. I know advisors who are doing this at you know thousand bucks up front, one hundred and fifty a month, you know, hundred dollars a month. I guess some, but I, I can't conceive of of it. I can't conceive of working for that cheap. Um, if you do something, and that would be, but by the way, so if I build, let's just use two hundred dollars as an example. That would be for simple, simple, simple planning scenarios. Simple employed households, no business owners, no complex, no great wealth, just simple, simple scenarios. And the value that we're bringing is all of that, uh, all of that monthly stuff, again, all of that car insurance, the house insurance, the, 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 the career coaching, all of that stuff. If you, if you flip it and say, if I were doing this base, what size portfolio would that be um, for, for a client? $200 a month would basically be equivalent to a 1% gross fee on a $240,000 portfolio. a month is $2,400 a year and $240,000 1% of that would be $2,400 a year of gross fees and uh, let's assume you're doing an RIA so you get 100% of that it doesn't go through uh, what we call the grid which is where your broker-dealer takes out their percentage of it Um, but so $200 a month, that would be about a $240,000 portfolio. It's about minimum entry level. Uh, I don't know many good competent advisors who will accept portfolios of less than $250,000 uh, unless there's some other planning. So I, would, uh, I accepted a couple of uh, smaller accounts when I was an advisor because I did other insurance planning. Uh, but it's just not enough. You, you, can't, you can't run a business on you know, $30,000 accounts. It doesn't work. But, so that's kind of the equivalent. I think if we, if we work hard, You know, if the, even if the client has $30,000 under my model, if they'll just pay me $200 a month, yeah, they're grossly overpaying what they would pay for so-called investment management, but that's not what I'm doing. I'm doing a lot more than that. So I think $200 a month is kind of the minimum that I could even see doing. I think you could probably handle about 100 clients with a model like I've said. Assume that you commit 2,000 hours per year to working, and that's a lot. Uh, that's more than you probably can do because that only is allowing for a two-week vacation. That's not allowing for any days uh, out of the office. That's not allowing for conferences for for education. That's not allowing for holidays. I'm just saying fifty out fifty weeks, forty hours per uh, forty hours a week. That's two thousand hours. So let's just use that. I think that's aggressive. Let's use it as an example. Well, under that scenario, 2,000 hours per year working and you're accepting 100 clients, that means that you wind up having 20 hours available each year for each client, each household. And so you can allocate 20 hours for your meetings – for the follow-up work, the things that you need to do between appointments, you know, actually handling the stuff after the meeting, uh, that handles the before the meetings. That handles everything. You've got 20 hours per year per client. If we guess for a moment that you're talking with the client an hour a month, and I think that's probably more than you would wind up doing for most, but you might have a three-hour meeting one month and you might have a 20-minute phone call the next, nothing the third month, and then another hour meeting that allows you twelve hours of client conversations and eight hours of of, of connection. If the client's paying you two hundred dollars a month, uh, and you're doing uh, twenty hours per year, you wind up with essentially having one hundred and twenty dollars an hour of revenue coming in for your budgeted time. I would have to test this, and this is where this was my idea. I haven't, I didn't, wasn't able to test it, but. I would – my guess is that that's my mental planning of I can't commit more than 20 hours per year to a client. But under this scenario, I think I would I, – I, my guess is how this would work out to be kind of like the gym model where more clients uh, sign up than go to the gym. And my guess is that most people wouldn't actually use an hour a month. Just be now. I don't know. <laughs> it's hard for me to get a show done in less than an hour, so maybe it would be multiple months. This is where I couldn't figure out how to test it. And I would and I wanted. To, I would probably have done higher fees. But if you run your numbers and let's just say you've got a hundred clients and you're doing this all yourself, a hundred clients at two hundred dollars a month. That's twenty thousand dollars a month gross gross income. If you pull out your expenses and this is where it's going to be highly subject. Let's assume that you've got twenty five percent. Uh, business expenses. So you run. You've got five thousand dollars a month of business expenses. Uh, those are the fees for your software packages, for your internet, for your phone, for your again your planning software. Those are your custodial fees. Those are your uh, your phone fees. If you need an assistant to handle appointments, or if you need a scheduling software, whatever. I just assume twenty five percent. You'd have to run your actual numbers. That leaves you with a total maximum profit margin of fifteen thousand dollars a month, or one hundred and eighty thousand uh, dollars per. A year. That could be higher if you you know work from home. Could be lower if you need an office and you need staff and and whatnot. But that leaves you with you know let's say a profit profit of one hundred eighty thousand dollars a year. Now, I don't want to offend those in the in the audience who are making thirty thousand dollars a year, but that's just not much money in the financial business. It's a good income. Don't get me wrong, but it's not the kind of thing the reason most men and women start in the financial business. It's a good but is nothing spectacular. Now the question was, and this is what I decided, is it worth it in terms of flexibility? Could that be a great lifestyle business? And that was what I decided is that could be a great lifestyle business. I'd be willing to walk away from the million dollars a year if I had the $180,000 a year that I could do from wherever without having to wear a suit and tie every day and without having to drive a fancy car to impress a bunch of people and I could just work from my computer screen and my phone. And I thought that would actually be okay. And if I were traveling and I'm cruising across the country or cruising around the world in an RV, and let's say I cut my client base to 50 hours and I budget 60 hours of work in a month, I can do that on the road. Or let's say even 80, 20 hours a week while in and around a travel schedule. Again, cruising across America, I could do that. That'd be an okay that'd be an okay lifestyle business. Ten thousand dollars a month gross, pull out a few thousand for for business expenses, six seven thousand dollars profit. While I while I'm on the road, I know a lot of people living on the road that would love to have that kind of business. So it's not much in the financial business, but it's pretty cool as a lifestyle business. Might be good. Now that's just kind of a minimum standpoint, and that I think is a model that would work with middle America again. Two hundred bucks a month. That's the about the price of entry i can't imagine if you were going to go anything lower than that you better charge a nice upfront fee uh you know a thousand bucks up front and 150 a month you know something like that Uh, and that's people are trying that model and seeing how it's working it'll be interesting to see as more people are doing this when i came up with the idea i didn't know anyone else was doing it and then i found out that other people were doing it i heard from um uh Alan Moore and Michael Kitsis started XY Planning Network, and all of a sudden, I found out there were other people doing it. I thought that was the coolest thing. I joined immediately uh, to get involved with them, and there, and I had some involvement with a bunch of people over there that are all kind of working this model. Um, so can you increase that monthly amount? I think you can. Now, the key would be to increase your leverage and your knowledge and work into a different field. Uh, and again, this is totally untested. So I don't know if will Middle America hundred thousand household income, again two forty-five thousand dollars, ninety thousand household income, will that will will the household like that be able to support two hundred dollars a month of 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 fees? I think they would if you're good. And I think they won't if you're not good, which is good. Be good. <laughs> uh but I would I would me personally I would go work in a more complex area, and I would always rather work at the higher end of the market myself and and just simply hustle to be worth much higher fees uh, I do think you probably need to bill uh, an upfront planning fee uh, I'm interested to hear uh, you know would we'll talk with some of my fellow advisors or former fellow advisors at XY uh, planning network uh, to see what's going on I think you would need to bill a higher fee up front and see because I wouldn't my concern with the $200 a month is there wouldn't be enough buy-in on the front end. And so I'd probably want to charge $1,000, 1500 up front to make sure the client's bought in, that they've actually put some money in so they're vested. Now, whether or not we do a workout arrangement over time, I mean, you've got to play with the billing idea. But I just would want to make sure that the client was bought in at some, some, uh, some upfront uh, up money. You do need to be very aware of the fact that if you go with a model like this, I think you're walking away from the big money. Let's assume that you follow the traditional uh, financial planning practice and you are focusing uh, on a high net worth advisory practice. So let's say over time you can build up your expertise, you can build up your infrastructure, and you can build up your marketing plan to where you can work with million-dollar accounts. This was my plan previously. I live in a very affluent part of the country. We have a lot of retirees. I love Retirement planning—that's my favorite market. It's funny. I was corresponding with some listeners, and and several of the listeners were saying, "Well, I'm not in your target demographic. I'm 53 years old, uh, not your target demographic. I'm 60 years old." And I wrote back and I said, "What made you think you're not in my target demographic?" I love, you know, my, when I was planning 50 to 70, that was what I was going after. I love that that area of planning. I like the complex uh, retirement planning. Just because I haven't talked about it much on the show is because I don't know how much it appeals to kind of what I think of as not a mainstream audience, but uh, the stuff I've talked about is more accessible than saying, oh, I've got $4 million. What do I do with that? Uh, I've got a question on the voicemail line sitting there from a listener who's saying, what are the retirement distribution strategies? How can I set things up? I'm getting all kinds of conflicting ideas. Um, But so I was starting to get to, I was starting, my practice was starting to develop into million dollar accounts. And that was what I loved. Million bucks, Hundred clients, it's a hundred million under management. One percent fees, million bucks of gross income. Pull out twenty five percent of expenses, seven hundred fifty thousand dollars of net revenue. Uh, to my, to my, to me, um, that's good. Now that's that may sound. Again, I apologize if any of this sounds. Uh, uh, doesn't sounds exclusive to you if you're making thirty thousand dollars a year, but this is what this is why people get in the financial planning business. Good for you to know. Uh, that's might sound impressive, but that's peanuts in the big advisory world. Uh, I don't remember what Paul Merriman said his firm managed when he sold, but um, I think they've got a billion and a half under under management now, a billion and a half. And I know some guys here in town in in West Palm, uh, in Palm Beach, and and just right here. Teams, 300 million, 400 million, half a billion with small staff, you know, seven, eight, eight people working uh, together. That, there you start to get into some really nice numbers. Another major problem, by the way, if you're thinking about setting this up and getting into the RIA space, you're going to be doing fee only. And that's a major problem if you're walking away from your insurance business. And this is tough. So let's assume in an insurance business, uh, if you walk away from your insurance business let 's just assume you 're just producing you 're producing an m d r t million dollar roundtable is an industry uh, industry business uh, industry affiliation i can 't remember what percentage of of the of insurance uh, um, agents are in million dollar roundtable it 's small but it 's not that small uh, you need to uh, depend varies depending on company but i think if you 're not doing m d r t after a few years uh, i mean what Maybe you're a local State Farm guy who mainly sells property and casualty and does you know ten thousand dollars of insurance business, but if you're serious and you're in financial in the financial side of it, you, you should be working within three, four, five years at million dollar roundtable. Um, I've never hit million dollar roundtable, by the way. Um, so I, that's uh, to be transparent because I'm already being honest with you. To be transparent to make sure that you know, I never hit million dollar roundtable because I switched. To from, and I started just simply to ignore insurance. But a million dollar roundtable for 2015, the numbers are $91,000 of first year commissions under the commissions method, um, or $156,000 of gross income. So essentially, you're barely getting to a million dollar roundtable. A million dollar roundtable should just probably be the start. Top of the table, uh, which is another classification, uh, is $552,000 of commissions or, or, of income. So what's the beautiful model in the financial business, which is what I was working, is you build up a massive insurance practice that builds your marketing base. And then out of that, you build up your investment management business over time. And with those two things together, you've got a million from your insurance business and a million from your investment business. And now you've got the money that you need to staff staff things. So um, and the, by the way, that's only new to, to qualify for million dollar roundtable. That's based that's built on new business, and so that doesn't count renewals over time from an insurance method, uh, from an insurance business. So the financial business hasn't solved this problem yet. If you move over to the fee only world, you're not accepting insurance commissions, and that's a real problem because no insurance company will sell insurance without commissions. Um, so, you know, you've got you're, you're sending away your insurance business. Now you can do it if you set up. Uh, Two firms. I mean, you can't, there are ways to make this work. But for those of you who are established in the business, just be aware. These are these are some costs. So I think that's what I wanted to convey as far as the idea of how I would set up a practice. So for some of you who are interested in saying, I want to set up something as a financial coach, you've got to figure out your marketing method. And this is the problem. If you can't market your practice, whether well, that means you're a practicing accountant and you offer some additional services to some of your clients, or whatever your thing is, you've got to get some business. You've got to get some practice. You got to figure out your marketing plan. What is my marketing plan? It's the same with any business. If you're going to start a, a selling strawberry jam out of your kitchen, how are you going to market your services? If same with you're getting a job, by the way. How are you going to market your services? This is what people don't think about. Is They don't think as marketers and salespeople. Um, we're scared of, of, being sal- of being salespeople, so we trot down to the internet and we say, well, what does Monster.com say that I need for a job? That's a dumb way to get a job. Figure out what, what do I want to do, who do I need to sell to, and then build a sales package to that industry or to that company. It's a whole lot different to go after a high-level, top-tier job and sell yourself in this company, in this industry, than it is just to see who's hiring. And what happens is people absorb some of the – because we don't talk about sales and we don't teach sales and we don't teach marketing, people absorb some of the concepts but not the – fullness of the concept. So we know, oh, I've got to get a degree to put on my resume because that'll be impressive. Well, what you're doing is you're trying to sell yourself to an employer. So you got a degree so you could put it on your resume, but you didn't think about the whole package. Maybe you needed the degree, maybe you didn't. But do you go a little bit beyond the resume? Do you build a no holds bar? This is the company. This is the industry. This is the job. Or are you just out casting for a job? So we're selling ourselves. I got to dress up. I got to wear my tie. I got to get my hair cut. I got to trim my beard before I go to the interview. We're selling ourselves without actually knowing that that's what we're doing. For the majority of people who are uh, wage earners, uh, working as working as a as an employee hourly or sal- salary basis, you are selling yourself. You're just not thinking that you're selling yourself because you think you're paid a salary. No, you're not. You're paid on commission. If you don't show up, they don't pay you. So that's – you're paid on commission. Um, I stole that from someone and I can't remember who. Um, So sorry for the rant, but the point is like I I think we should be teaching sales to everybody because we're all in sales, every single one of us in some aspect of our life. We're selling our employers on keeping us. We're selling our spouse on why we're a a great person. We're selling our kids on why they should do what we say. We're selling each other on why – I'm selling you every day on why you should believe the concepts and why you should send me your money so I can keep doing it. (laughs) That's it. Uh, That's that's my whole business. So – I think this solves this – if any of you have any – if any of you were interested in this, um, the best one that I see right now is my friend Alan Moore and I need to have him on the show at some point and give him a chance to talk about his journey to starting because it's a cool entrepreneurial service uh, story with starting – his company, XY Planning Network, and XY Planning Network. This is they're big on this model. This was his idea. He was starting to do this. Was his practice, and he said we got to promote this. And they're starting to get a lot of press, a lot of people, and they've got a really great handholding service uh, set up. So I think their web the website is. I was a member for six or eight months, uh, and then I just decided I can't do both, so I'm just doing this show, and I walked away from that. And I and I. Cancel my membership finally but i think it's xyplanningnetwork.com i'll check and i'll put it in the in the notes but check out his resources he's doing a great job they've got a bunch of advisors that are signing on with him they got more and more every day and many of them are pursuing this model and they're trying to say how can i provide excellent financial planning advice and excellent financial planning service in a way that is uh in a way that is consistent in a way that allows me to have my lifestyle the way that i that i have it set up uh Alan lives in is uh, it Wyoming or Montana? Uh, one of them, and you know, has a big beard and shows up in jeans and shorts, and he's a financial planner, and he wouldn't have it any other way. So there are other people doing this. I do warn you, this is not a tested model. So you're if you do something like this, you're very much a pioneer, uh, and I think that's cool. I think there's a need for it. I've done my best at the beginning. I kind of sold the need of how I see and what the value I saw in it for people. Uh, I think there's a massive need for it, and maybe this might be helpful to you. Those are all my good ideas that I gave away to you. Go make some money with them. Uh, I've decided that I'm not going to do it, uh, or at least I'm not going to do it right now. Uh, I reserve the right to change my mind in the future, but I'm not going to do it right now. So I hope they work for you. Let me know. Shoot me a note if you have more questions. Hopefully this was a useful follow-up to those of you who have an interest in, in this type of thing. I know it's not really mainstream content of how do I fix my own financial planning life. Maybe you have some ideas. Maybe you have a little bit of insight into the uh, financial planning business. That's it for today's show. I'll be back with you tomorrow. You know what? Tomorrow I'm going to be releasing this interview that I did with Kirk Chisholm. And Kirk, you're going to enjoy it. It's a great show. Kirk and I dig into how to do self-directed IRAs and how to invest in all kinds of non, non-mainstream stuff within your self-directed IRAs. Those of you who like the the non-mainstream stuff I do, uh, kind of how do I, again, how do I put a horse racing team uh, inside my IRA? Or even better, uh, I didn't talk with Kirk about this, but hey, I want to race my Porsche. How do I put my company <laughs> inside my IRA so I'll race dollars get put into the, into the IRA? There's all kinds of things that can be done. So check back tomorrow for that interview you and support the show last uh, membership program um, fair warning it's going away it's going to come back in the future but it's going away if you want in now well it's cheap uh, it's not going to be cheap in the future I appreciate y'all support cheers y'all Thank you for listening to today's show. If you'd like to contact me personally, my email address is joshua at radicalpersonalfinance.com. You can also connect with the show on Twitter, at RadicalPF, and at facebook.com slash radicalpersonalfinance. This show is intended to provide entertainment, education, and financial enlightenment. But your situation is unique, and I cannot deliver any actionable advice— Without knowing anything about you, please develop a team of professional advisors who you find to be caring, competent, and trustworthy, and consult them because they are the ones who can understand your specific needs, your specific goals, and provide specific answers to your questions. I've done my absolute best to be clear and accurate in today's show, but I'm one person and I make mistakes. If you spot a mistake in something I've said, please help me by coming to the show page and commenting so we can all learn together. Until tomorrow, thanks for being here.